I'm Jancis Robinson. Welcome to JancisRobinson.com, the podcast. Christian Seely, dapper in a bow tie, is in charge of AXA Millezim, the wine division of the insurance giant AXA, which means he's one of the most widely experienced fine wine producers in the world, responsible for two of the most admired Bordeaux chateaus, Pichon Baron, a second growth poet that often trounces its first growth neighbors in blind tastings, and the top performing Sauterne, Chateau Sudero. And for good measure, he looks after the world-famous port estate, Quinta de Noval, Domaine de Lalo in Burgundy, Disnoco in Hungary's Tokai region, and recently acquired Outpost, a highly admired Napa Valley estate for a rumored $40 million. What he doesn't know about classic wines probably isn't worth knowing. He lives in Bordeaux, which is not surprising because Bordeaux is the center of the world's fine wine market with hundreds of producers, merchants, and brokers all dancing round each other. I caught up with him there just as the 2021 En Primeur Bordeaux wines were being presented to the trade and media before being released on the market. So, uh, describe your job to me. My job is Managing Director of AXA Millezim which is a rather unusual winemaking company, unusual for a number of reasons, but one of the main ones is that it belongs to a, a large insurance company who have owned uh, most of their vineyards for a very long time and uh, are unusual in the, the rather visionary long-term approach they take to managing vineyards, which enables me and the uh, technical teams that I work with in each property to manage these great vineyards with a, a long-term vision, as if it were a family business. And, and that's actually quite rare for a, a multinational financial investor to take that sort of long-term view. It's, it's very important because without that long-term view, it's extremely difficult to manage great properties like Pichon Baron or Chateau Soudreau as they should be managed. You have the best job in the world then, don't you? I have a job that I absolutely adore doing, and uh, I've been doing it for a long time now. And uh, I've been with Axel Millezim now for nearly 29 years. And for the first uh, seven years, I was just based in the Dora at Quinton Noval. And that was rather wonderful. Axel Millezim uh, parachuted me in as managing director of Quinton Noval with a brief to um, polish up the jewel, as it were, because Noval was losing money and uh, had not perhaps been making wines up to its full potential for quite a few years. And so the, the two briefs were to uh, make it profitable again and to, uh, to make it make great wines again. So I had seven wonderful years at Naval. And then at the end of that period, AXA invited me to come to Bordeaux to take over the, as managing director of the, the whole group. And so now I look after all these wonderful vineyards. And uh, yes, it is uh, enormous fun. I do actually enjoy every single uh, day that I go to work. You're very, very lucky. And you're in charge of this great array of classic wines. Just for the ordinary wine drinker, what should they expect from a classic wine? That's a very good question. I'm not surprised that you pose it. <laughs> but it's very difficult to answer, it probably. Is quite, it's quite difficult. I, I think that in some ways, obviously, when you're making wines in places as, as diverse and different as California, Portugal, 
Hungary, Sautern or Poyak or Burgundy, you're definitely going to be making wines of very strikingly different personalities. And so uh, the things that you're going to be looking for in many respects are quite different in each one of those wines. But I do actually think that there are points that vineyards of that calibre have in common. Certainly in, in terms of how to look after them, it all comes down to looking after the vineyard and making wines that are faithful, balanced, harmonious expressions of the terroir and not trying to make the wine ever be something that it's not in any given vintage and just trying to uh, allow the wine to express the vineyard and what nature gave to us in any given year. So that's what we try to do in each place. And it, the approach is remarkably similar, although the results are rather different. But I think what a consumer, a wine drinker can look for in wines that come from vineyards of this level is... Um, an experience that goes beyond just the, the physical pleasure of drinking a very good wine. Ideally, it should be memorable. It should be an experience that you share with people, which uh, gives you a, a shared emotion and a shared memory. That's what great wines can do. They can transform a moment and enhance it, a, a moment of pleasure among friends, so that you uh, remember that moment, sometimes for a very long time. And yes. Bordeaux is very important in, in the world of wine. What would you say makes Bordeaux exciting today? Bordeaux has known how to reinvent itself to a certain degree over the past 30 years. The, the way that people are working in the vineyards here in Bordeaux, the way that people are working in the wines, the sensitivity of people's approaches to uh, winemaking are really incomparably different to how they might have been 30 or 40 years ago. And so you have with Bordeaux, one of the very great vineyard regions of the world, that although from time to time in the past there have been short phases of complacency, tends to uh, get its act together pretty fast if collectively there's a feeling that progress needs to be made. And uh, if you look back over the history of Bordeaux, and certainly over the last 35 years, it's one of constant, I think, upward progress in terms of quality. And I think that the vintage that we're tasting at the moment is a very interesting illustration 2000 of that. Um, 2021. 2021. So 2021 is a year that there's no question that it was not an easy year in the vineyard although there aren't that many easy years in the vineyard, but it, it threw quite a lot of uh, challenges at the winemakers. <laughs> you had the problems in flowering, which reduced the yields. We had uh, hard frosts, Fro which in some places were quite uh, catastrophic. We had uh, quite uh, virulent mildew, which is a persistent problem these days, but last year was particularly so. And all those things meant that it was a very challenging year to work in the vineyard. And, and in many cases, yields are very dramatically down on what they might normally be. And it, it was a year where uh, we've had uh, a wonderful run of uh, solar years, as we say here, the 18, the 19, Sunny the 20. Sunny years. Yeah, yeah where, where you've, you've had lots of sunshine, lots of heat. And, uh, and in, in 2021, it wasn't quite like that. The fine weather really only started in August. We had it in August and September, and it acted on quite low yields. And it was sunny, but not actually that hot. So it was just enough to get the grapes 
perfectly right. But it was also, there's no question that you do not have the big, full, rich mid palette that you do with a 2018 or a 2020. There's a, a coolness and freshness about the wines. The, the, the alcohol levels are considerably lower, the lowest they've been for some years, as a matter of fact. And um, you, you had to add sugar to some. Yeah, lots, there, was a, didn't there, was you? A, there was a degree of chaptalization in our case uh, between 0.3 and 0.5 on, on a, a few of the Cabernet lots. But uh, the result is, uh, I think, are some, some really lovely wines. I tasted all the UGC wines uh, last week. The Union de Grand Cru, the, yes. the class gross, the posh yes. ones. The posh ones. And, and of course, I know our wines quite well. And I, I think that what's really, uh, I find quite thrilling about this year is that this is, I think that 2021 has made some absolutely beautiful wines that probably 25 or 30 years ago, Bordeaux would not have made. Well, Just even back in 2013, which was another really yes. challenging, as they say, yeah, yes. the results were much less impressive, weren't they? They were. I, I mean, I think that 13 was more difficult than 21 in some ways. Uh, I, I think there's an interesting parallel with 1996, which was also, like this year, a wonderful year for Cabernet Sauvignon. There was sunshine, but it wasn't that hot. But I, I think that what we have in 21 is a, uh, a purity, precision, energy, whatever you like, and a, and a sort of crystalline quality in the very best Cabernets that wouldn't have happened in in the 1990s, probably because there were people working with higher yields and they were not selecting so strictly and all that. So, so I think Bordeaux is exciting in that we've had this wonderful series, and then we've just had 21, and we show that we can make, uh, I think, a grand classic. Classic is very overused <laughs> words, but it but it is a, a grand classic in that it, it's it's like a very beautiful wine from the past, except that it's made in a way that wines from the past weren't. And so it has a more purity and more um, more balance to it, I guess. But I do meet people all over the world who are disaffected with Bordeaux that say, oh, it's boring, you know. That, and I should preface this by saying I also admire the skillfulness of Bordeaux's winemakers, that they just keep getting more skilled all the time in a more obvious way than perhaps in any other region. Perhaps because of the university and there's a, a lot of academic uh, help coming out and techniques and, and all the rest. But there are people who are bored with it or who just feel, oh, Cabernet, I've had that, you know, let's try lesser spotted, what's it? <laughs> and, and I hear that actually even from quite mainstream wine people. I suppose they're all mad about Burgundy at the moment, and you, of course, have a foot in Burgundy yeah. with Domaine de Lalo. Quite happy to yeah. be mad about Burgundy. <laughs> I, I think uh, l'un n'empêche pas l'autre. Yeah, of course, I've come across people who are disaffected with Bordeaux as well, and I wonder sometimes whether they're disaffected with Bordeaux or whether they're disaffected with the idea of Bordeaux. It's two different things. And, and I think sometimes for sommeliers, it's not the most uh, original thing for the sommelier to say, uh, I think you will find the Premier Cru Bordeaux rather wonderful tonight. So, uh, you know, we could... We could all do that. And it's probably easier to make a splash as a sommelier to say, I've got this marvelous range of natural wines from Beaujolais or whatever. Uh, but uh, I do think we're talking about fashion sometimes. And what I've noticed, of course, I've, I've come across people who've expressed things like such as what you've just said, but uh, they quite often come back. And I do think that Bordeaux is a place and Bordeaux is a wine that in the end you come back to. It's quite uh, fun having adventures all over the place, but it's uh, it's very wonderful to come back to and rediscover it. And and also, if you've been away for a few years, to discover that not only is it just as good as it ever was, it's moved on. Uh, yes, it gets better with every vintage, that's yeah. true. I suppose the two negative factors are, one, that famous Bordeaux needs keeping, 
you can't really say to a newcomer to wine, try this latest vintage and you'll love it in its youth. You, you do need to age it. Yes. And then there's a the question of price. It is expensive. I mean, why is famous Bordeaux so expensive when it's not that expensive to make? I don't, I don't think there's ever been much of a, a link between the, the cost of making wine and, and the price you sell it at. If there were, we would be selling Sauternes much more expensively than we sell it. Yes, which would be really justifiable. Well, we're just, yeah. we, we, there have been quite a few years where the, the cost price of a bottle of Sudero is higher than the, the selling price. But in the end, I don't think that the person who buys the wine is terribly interested by whatever problems a producer may have had or whatever circumstances a producer may have had, they're, what they're interested in is the intrinsic quality of the bottle in front of them and how much they want it. In the end, that's what decides the price. And intrinsic quality in something like a great Sauterne is obviously there. But how often do people want to drink it? Alas, for Sauterne at the moment, not that much. And so the price is relatively low. For the very great red wines, how many people in the world want to drink them and how often do they want to drink them? quite a lot of people and as often as they can. And, and that has its effect on the price. It really is a question of uh, a huge demand and uh, a limited supply. And I think the supply also has got considerably more limited. If you look at the history of Pichon Baron in the 1990s, we were making up to 350,000 bottles a year of the Grand Vin of Pichon Baron. Since 2001, we've averaged 160,000. Because you're selecting Selecting more, much more strictly. Which is part of the reason that the quality seems to be going up and up and up. That's part of the idea, I hope. And, <laughs> and that's quite an extreme case in the case of Pichon Baron. And it was a big strategic decision we took in 2001. But there are many other great Grand Cru's who are doing the same. And some of the very great names, when you actually ask them what portion of their vineyard has gone into making the Grand Vin, it's surprisingly small, which probably... 30 years ago, was uh, it was a much higher proportion. And so I think everybody is making sacrifices in the terms of uh, quantity to make the wine as beautiful and perfect as it can possibly be. So there's less of the very, very best wine. And the demand for those wines is very, very strong, you know, really every year. Top Bordeaux sold in a particular, slightly peculiar way, isn't it? Can you describe the en primeur system? I'll have a go. Uh, so the the Arm Primaire system is um, it's a bit like what what Winston Churchill said about democracy. It's it's uh, the worst of all possible systems, apart from all those others that have been tried from time to time. And, <laughs> and, and uh, at first sight, you think this is a very strange uh, way of commercialising the wine. And quite often, people arrive in Bordeaux, they buy a big chateau, and they think this is crazy. I don't think we should be working in with a, a, an antiquated system like this. But invariably, after a few years, they realize that actually it's a system that really works rather well. So how does it work? A chateau like Pichon Baron might work with approximately 40 to 50 different negociants. A negociant being a kind of merchant wholesaler kind yes, of thing. Yes, merchant yeah. wholesaler based in Bordeaux, and uh, and they vary enormously in size and character and in specialisations. So you you might have uh, some very large negociants, uh, which are generalists who sell all sorts of wines all over the world. Uh, you might have a really quite small one just specialising in selling wines to Scandinavia, or you might have another one who's particularly strong in Japan. Some who uh, who like the good life, who only supply the Caribbean, like that. And, and some who are specialized in supplying supermarkets, so, and some who specialize in supplying restaurants. As the, the chateau, what you, what you try to do is to make yourself a cocktail 
of negotiations. You, you go through all the specialities of all the different people and you try and make yourself a group of negotiations with each with specific talents and specific uh, distributive capacities. You establish relationships with them which are, are long and durable and are based on transparency and trust. And you each year you give, according to their size and according to the market you want to develop, an allocation of your wines to that negotiation. So an allocation might vary from, from a really small one, could be five cases, and a really big one might be 500 cases of your wine. And then when you come out with your wine, you declare your, your wine, uh, one day you decide, this is the day that uh, I'm going to declare the availability and the price of Pichon Baron. Uh, you declare it, you send a message to all your negotiation partners. Those messages pass through the courtier, and this is a very unique system, uh, very specific to Bordeaux, but there are um, brokers, intermediaries uh, in between the chateaus and the negotiations. They announce their price, they announce the allocations, and in a, a good year for a strong property, uh, you can announce your price at 8.30 in the morning and all your wine will be sold by midday. That's a very significant advantage for a chateau to know that the proportion of your year's crop that you wanted to sell uh, on Primeur is sold in a few hours. The next phase, of course, is absolutely vital because selling to the negos is, the, is one thing. Their job after that is to distribute it around the world. So they, in turn, as soon as they've received their allocations, will then contact all their clients all over the world. And again, if it's a, a great wine from a strong chateau in a great year, uh, they can actually sell on through everything they want to sell on through within the day. It's quite a usual thing, uh, if all is going well, for a wine to be declared in the morning and by the end of the evening, a worldwide distribution for that wine has been achieved. So it is a system that works. And in the meantime, there are some negotiations who, who will keep back stocks. Some, some sell it all on and some uh, who are well-funded uh, will choose to keep back stocks for a number of years. And they're providing a very useful function as well because they are actually keeping stocks in perfect conditions in Bordeaux so that they can propose them to the market a few years down the line when the wines are more mature. Obviously, they're going to charge more for them then, but at least the wines will be uh, available later. And the, the end user, the client, is generally offered the, the wine pretty soon after that merchant in a distant country has agreed to buy it, aren't yes, they? Yes, exactly. So us, the consumers, are asked to pay for this wine long before it's even bottled, aren't we? Yes, that is the way the system works. And, and it, uh, that which seems unfair to me as a consumer. I mean, it seems wonderfully efficient from your point of view as a producer. Well, hang on. I, <laughs> I'm also a consumer and I buy wine on Primo for myself, mm -hmm. from, from my neighbours and friends, because uh, I think that it's uh, a great opportunity to get hold of it. That Sometimes there are wines that you really like that, that just aren't available later on. And, and so you can be sure of getting it. I particularly like Magnums because I've always thought it was the right size. And you can specify, one of the nice things about Premier is that you can specify what size you want, Magnums, double Magnum, whatever you like. And it's usually the case if you buy well, there's an element of luck as well, because not all vintages do this, but by the time five years have gone by or 10 years have gone by and you're thinking about maybe uh, having a first bottle of it, the price will have uh, in the market will have gone up considerably. And so- You hope, mostly it does. Yeah, mostly it does. It hasn't always. <laughs> I can give you a little Excel spreadsheet of Michel Barra over the last 20 years, and it would, it was, it's highly convincing. So convincing, in fact, that uh, as from 2014 onwards, we stopped putting, uh, we used to put 
95% of our wine on the market on Primeur. We now put uh, 50% on Primeur and uh, we keep the other half back. Gosh, that's a and big drop, isn't it? Was it was a huge drop. Yeah. And, and, and it actually had the curious effect of artificially depressing our sales for a number of years because <laughs> uh, we're keeping the wines back. But it's a very long-term idea. It, 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 I mean, it's because we believe in our own wine. And by doing that, we're allowing the consumer to have two choices. You can either buy it on Primeur with all the advantages and inconvenience that entails. Or if you say, I don't want to buy it on Primeur, I can always say, well, I've got some and you can come back later and it'll be more expensive probably, but uh, we'll have it at the Chateau as well. And that I think is quite a, a reasonable way of dealing with any possible objections you can choose. <laughs> what do those courtiers, the brokers, do to earn their commission? The courtiers are very good at advising the chateau on which uh, negociant is rising and improve, uh, raising its game and improving its distribution, which ones are perhaps uh, a little bit uh, static, uh, wh where we should be giving more allocations. And uh, so, in fact, they do uh, provide a, a function which is a lot more useful than it, it might appear to be. <laughs> Um, so we've talked about nothing but very smart Bordeaux, yeah. but I think, and and it's a view that's not widely disseminated, but I keep repeating it. Nobody seems to take much notice. Bordeaux can provide some of the best value wine in the world, yes. you know, way below your exalted level. But if you've got these ripe vintages, yep. like 18, 19, 20, the so-called pretty chateau, the ones that don't have a sort of grand reputation. They're making fantastic wine, some of them at the moment, aren't they? For, and, and giving it away practically because the region's so big. Absolutely. And I think it's most unjust for uh, chateaus of that sort to be tarred with the brush of being uh, Bordeaux and therefore very expensive when they really aren't. I mean, I, I live, my house is in the middle of Listrac and I've got one or two neighbours who make absolutely stupendous wines, and especially when it's a, a, a nice hot sunny year. They're real bargains. Bordeaux is full of little secrets like that. And it's a bit of a shame for those kind of producers that it is such a secret, but it, it's definitely an opportunity for wine drinkers to, to find things. Because while wines like that do not have the, the grandeur and the, and the and the price. Uh, and the, <laughs> the, the precision and all that of the great, beautiful Grand, grand Vin. They are absolutely authentically and recognisably serious Bordeaux, and it is possible to find them. How would you describe those hallmarks of serious Bordeaux? I'll tell you what I'm looking for, and it's probably fair to say that I'm more of a left bank drinker than a right, a right bank drinker. But, left uh, bank meaning Medoc, Grave, yes. right bank being Saint-Emilion, Pomerol. Exactly. And... I love all those wines too, but I really love the Medoc in its grandest expressions and, and also in its humbler expressions. I think that uh, Bordeaux has always had, and I think still has and, and still can have, the characteristic of uh, drinkability, this sort of uh, notion of uh, freshness, uh, where even in quite hot years, because Cabernet is growing on the right sort of terroir in the Medoc, can give you fresh, balanced wines where it's just a pleasure to sit down and share a bottle or, or more with friends. And uh, when you get up after lunch, you still feel uh, pretty happy and refreshed rather than knocked over the head, which can happen with uh, wines from other parts of the world that don't always have this equilibrium and freshness and drinkability. 
You haven't mentioned tannin, which I would say is is quite a characteristic of red Bordeaux. Absolutely. I mean, people have different tolerances of, of tannins at, at various ages of the wine. I am actually very tolerant of tannins, but but I do think that when you have a, a very young tannic wine, it really helps to have something to eat with. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, it's it's not an aperitif wine in no, any way, is it? No. No. Yeah. And, and, and that's going back to your question about what is a great Bordeaux, it's above all a gastronomic wine. It's, it's a wine for eating. What advice would you give to wine drinkers looking for a bargain red Bordeaux? Um, read Jancis Robinson's book. Quite pages. right. So right. <laughs> Absolutely. And I didn't even feed you that line. We keep finding lots of really yeah. good ones. Yeah, yeah. And I think there are various retailers who go above and beyond to, to nose them out. Yes. Aren't there? Um, certainly in the UK, the Wine Society has always been very, very good, good at finding... Um, out of the way, Petit Chateau. Yeah. And I think there are a few people in, in the US doing the same thing. Yeah. yeah. But of course, they're not making as much money selling them as they do selling the grand stuff. No, but in, in a way, it's perhaps, you know, builds a, a more sort of perennial business. Uh, if you establish a uh, you know, long-term demand among customers for that style of wine, I think you can build a very nice uh, wine distribution business all the same. And it's something quite satisfying about selling wine that's actually knowing it's going to be drunk, yes. because that that's a big criticism of Bordeaux, isn't it? That some people just buy it to invest in, that it's just a, a financial commodity. Of course, I, I hate that idea. And I, I have never knowingly sold a, a bottle of wine to a company specialised in investing in wine. Uh, and I've, I've had people come and approach uh, us at, at Chateau Pichon Bauan saying, we have an investment fund. And I said, well, that's not what we're making the wine for. And that's been my answer for 22 years. Of course, when we make the wine, what we're thinking about is uh, making uh, somebody or some people happy one day when they're drinking it. We're not thinking about stashing it away in a, in a vault in Zurich. And mm. so now I'm completely against that notion. I think the exception to that would be the fairly healthy idea of somebody uh, uh, buying a few cases of, of wine for their own cellar. And if they find after five years that actually it's doubled in value, well, they can sell off half of it and feel they've drunk the other half for free or reinvested in something else. That doesn't strike me as being investment. That's just seller management. <laughs> And on a general level, then, what's Bordeaux doing to invest in the future for its own future? I think that uh, we sort of touched on the, the progress that's generally been made in the, the way that people work in the vineyards, and that is a huge investment in the future, which is going to continue. Everyone is, who can has invested in their wineries to enable them to get the absolute finest wine they possibly can out of whatever nature gives them that year. I think that everyone has also become much more conscious of the notion of sustainability compared to what was happening in the 70s and 80s, herbicides disappeared, insecticides have disappeared. Another aspect of sustainability is how you treat the vines, because if you try and make the vines produce gigantic yields, which they used to do, the vines will not last so long. And it's not just a question of the sustainability of the earth, but also of the wonderful vines you've planted. 
there used to be an amazing resistance to the idea of organic viticulture in Bordeaux, didn't there? But that's changed rapidly recently, wouldn't you say? I think it has changed quite considerably. I I think the major concern that remains is that moving from, especially in the Medoc, we have an oceanic climate with lots of rain. When you finally go over the edge into organic, and for a lot of people who aren't organic, it's just a a small step, actually. The the one thing that is problematic is the... uh, protection of the vines against mildew mm. in the, the humidity that we have. And there's no doubt that if you do go over to uh, organics, you do have to rely on more frequent treatments using copper sulfate. And although copper sulfate is allowed in organic, copper is a heavy metal and it does build up in the soil. That for me is the principal obstacle uh, in, in Bordeaux, and particularly in the, in the Medoc, to moving full-on organic. It is a problem, and but at least the vines aren't covered with blue powder. They used no. the way they used to be with, when copper sprays were so frequent. Right. They're less frequent now, but it, I can see that problem. But I, but Bordeaux is also investing in research into um, varieties that can handle hotter summers too, isn't it? Yes. I mean, why not? Personally, I, I'm very happy with the Cabernet Sauvignon and Pichon Baron. So I think it would be a very, very long way down the road before uh, we, we actually move to um, trying other varietals. But what, what is definitely happening, if you take Pichon example, and it's not unique, uh, is that a lot of these great properties are going progressively towards uh, higher proportions of Cabernet Sauvignon. The Merlot uh, definitely in any given weather conditions will get riper and have an extra degree of alcohol. And so Pichon Baron, which used to be 60-40 Cabernet Merlot, it tends to, today to be uh, 80 to 88% Cabernet Sauvignon, much higher proportions of Cabernet, which we're thrilled about because the Cabernets are, are always wonderful, but it also helps us to maintain uh, the, the freshness and to avoid high alcohols. Which Bordeaux vintages are you choosing to drink? at the moment? Because you can presumably raid the cellar, get your hands on anything you like. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really enjoying uh, 2008 at the moment. I really like uh, that vintage. I actually really like 2007 as well. I had a, a bottle of that while I was watching the debate last night, actually. And, uh, one most surprising one is 2003, which when it came out, we, uh, I thought, you know, it was too ripe and it wouldn't... Uh, that was the heat wave year, wasn't yeah, it? Very the hot, first very heat dry. wave year. Yeah. What's astonishing about the 2003s from the great Medoc properties like Pichon Barrel is that as the year's gone by in the bottle, it's like the terroir has uh, affirmed itself and, and they have absolutely lovely freshness today. So I absolutely love the 2003s, um, 2001 as well. I had a glass of that before I came out. <laughs> That's true, by the way. <laughs> I, I believe you. I absolutely believe you. Don't worry. Um now, when I interviewed you in 2004, you said that your most exciting opportunity then was Asia. How's that panned out? Commercially speaking, yes, there's no question. It's panned out extremely well because if you look at what we were selling in uh, China, mainland China at that stage, the sales of Grand Cru Bordeaux were really quite low still in 2004. They've since uh, increased in a very uh, dramatic way, so much so that it's something that needs to be managed because you, uh, and I definitely tried to manage it in, at Chateau Pichon. For years, from the time we had that talk for the next uh, 12 years, I used to go to China about three times a year talking about the wines and all that. These days, anyway, you can't go there anyway at the moment, but these days we've got to a point where we're actually selling uh, as much Pichon Baron in China as we can, 
without being unbalanced in the rest of the world. And, and I think it's very important to, um, we go back to your question about negotiations, when you're managing your relationships with the negotiations, and it, it is a transparent relationship where they will tell you where they're selling it. You make it clear to people that uh, you want to keep a balance of distribution. You actually have to limit, if you've got a really booming market like China, you actually have to uh, say, hang on a minute, if you sell it all over there, you're going to be neglecting all our traditional markets. So for a start, they've been faithful to our wines for decades, and it's not at all a decent thing to abandon them. But secondly, it's not actually very smart long term. It, it's much healthier for Chateau to have a, a balanced uh, portfolio around the world. So the, uh, going back to your question, yes, Asia, China in particular, has been uh, wonderfully dynamic. But we've now reached a stage where that actually has to be managed quite carefully to ensure an, an even distribution of a wine like Pichon around the world. There was a time, wasn't there, when one used to joke there ought to be a direct flight from Bordeaux to Shanghai because there are so <laughs> many of you Bordeaux Chatelain going over there. You must have sort of bumped into your neighbours over there. Uh, far more often in China than in the Mediterranean. <laughs> <laughs> when did that stop, would you say? Um, for me, it was about uh, five years ago. There's not much point in going there all the time to stimulate sales when you can't Supply, supply so, yeah. yeah. And then also in 2004, you said the biggest challenge was selling Sautern. And of course, you're responsible for three great sweet wines, the uh, lovely Chateau Sudero, Noval Port, and the Dijnoco Tokai. Yes. Has it got any easier? No. Uh, <laughs> the, the, it hasn't got easier, but there are actually some... Uh, quite positive signs uh, on the horizon. Uh, one major thing that, uh, uh, it's good that you mentioned 2004 as the start date, because 2004 was the first year that we produced a dry white wine at Chateau Cidre. And we've been working on uh, quality dry white wines uh, at Chateau Cidre in very small volumes, but in a sort of almost experimental way, just making a few hundred cases a year for a long time. And at the beginning, we were quite borderline about it. And so it would tend to be a majority Sauvignon, minority Semillon. We realized that uh, Semillon was what was the most interesting thing. And so today, our, uh, our top dry white wines from Sudero are majority Semillon. And actually, we've in 2020, we made a 100% pure Semillon, which will go on the market this year. And it's lovely. What's what? it called? It's just called uh, Chateau Sudero Pure Semillon. Uh, so, certain uh, Chateau Sudero, we, we've stuck to our guns of uh, small amounts of very great certain, very strict selections to make the Grand Vin. To a certain extent, that has worked because, uh, well, apart from anything else, the wine's been all right, I hope. But Chateau Sudero is one of the, the few certain chateaus that actually does sell its wine on Primeur and has actually been able to defend its uh, selling price to a certain extent. But even Although so, you say it, sometimes that selling price has been lower than the cost price. Of course. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and there are years like that. We, we've actually, this year, just launched uh, a complete new range of uh, dry white wines. So there's now a Chateau Sudero Grand Vin Blanc Sec, Vieille Vigne. And that's probably the most important element in the, in the mix, which deliberately takes the label of Chateau Sudero Sauterne and puts it on a dry white wine bottle. And we're investing quite a lot in new cuvery to, to make the dry white wine, because we've got to the stage where we're making dry whites with a, usually about 60% Semillon from the, the Grand Terroirs and all that, of, of sufficient quality that uh, I think they deserve to be given uh, you know, equal priority to the, the Grand Vin Licorre. And so our 10-year plan is to get to a stage where we'll still be making small amounts of very great Sauternes, but something like thirty to 40,000 bottles a year of Sudero Licorre, 
and 30 to 40,000 bottles of the Grand Vin Blanc Sec. And that's the where I see the future of Sudero in 10 years' time. And we're sort of moving that way now. So does AXA give you pretty much free reign then, all this investment and whatever? No, it's not really like that. I answer to a very rigorous system of controls with, with uh, I have two board meetings every year, which are very uh, intensive day-long affairs with some very high-powered uh, directors who are from AXA. And th that's an opportunity for me to uh, give a report to them about everything that we have been doing, everything that we're planning to do, and, and discuss it with them. And, and if there's any you know, strategic decision about a change, uh, that has to be approved at that board level. Once it's been approved, uh, then operationally as the managing director, I can get on and implement it. And, but then I have to answer another board meeting in six months' time did I do it? Did I do it right? And that, that's the system. So definitely not a free hand, but a remarkable degree of autonomy with a very um, intelligent system of, of control. Why buy in, in California? I think that uh, it's... It's Outpost, isn't it? It's the yeah, brand. Outpost yes. is the brand. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, with Pichon Baron, we have a, a vineyard tower that's one of the great Cabernet Sauvignon terroirs in the world, and I hope we're making one of the great Cabernet-based wines of, of the world. And uh, I thought if we're going to go somewhere else, why not go to Napa Valley, uh, to a place where, where Cabernet has found another great expression, quite different. We're definitely not going to Napa to try and make Poyac. We might just as well stay here if we wanted to do that. Um, and we were looking for, and I spent two years looking in, in Napa, visiting lots of vineyards. Uh, what we were looking for was a vineyard that had something that we recognized as a serious terroir capable of making very beautiful Cabernets. And it was only after quite a lot of searching that uh, I found myself in the tasting room of Outpost one day at the top of Howell Mountain. I had the tasting and, uh, and I literally went out to the tasting room and uh, called home and said that we found it. <laughs> but it also having a property there also allows you to sell your other wines, French wines, Portuguese wines, Hungarian wines, direct to the American public, doesn't it? We haven't started doing that, but it definitely raises your profile as a European producer in America. And I think America is the most wonderful market for wine of all kinds, and, and it's very important to be there. So if you are a European producer and you are also an important producer in Napa, it definitely changes the perception and the notoriety of your wines. I think there's also a sort of security aspect, which is that perhaps a drawback to making Grand Cru Bordeaux is that it is actually rather vulnerable to interruptions in global trade flows. Hmm. Uh, sounds a bit dull, but it's true. And uh, as we've seen, you know, anything can happen in this mad world. And with a, a serious high quality Cabernet producer in Napa, that is not going to be interrupted by any uh, tariff wars or, or war wars or anything. And I, I've seen that other high-profile French wine producers are start who own California properties are starting to market their French wines yeah. on their own American websites and whatever. Um, I, I so think you, that, that may well come. Yes. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. What are the differences in ethos between the wine worlds of Bordeaux, Burgundy, and Napa? How differently do you feel in each of those places? Yes, they're different worlds. People are different. Attitudes are different. And yet the underlying thing is the same, looking after the vineyards and making great wine. And there's that underlying current that unites all the, the great winemakers and vineyard managers in those places. And they are, although they're not, talking the same language in, in that respect. So it's in one way extremely familiar and in other ways refreshingly different because uh, everyone drinks different wines and uh, 
they have different conversations. But uh, I feel really quite at home. English people are supposed to feel at home when they see the sea. And uh, I feel at home when I'm in a vineyard. It doesn't really matter where. Do you dress the same in all these places? Do you wear a bow tie in Burgundy? No. <laughs> what do you wear in Burgundy? I take it off. Uh, it's a disguise. <laughs> no, no, definitely more relaxed. I just always tend to wear a bow tie here. But, but um, although I would sometimes take it off crossing the river into uh, uh, Pomerol. Um, so so they're, they're just different, slight differences uh, everywhere. Yes. What are you proudest of? I think I'm proudest of the fact that over the last 28, 29 years, I've managed to gather around me in all the different vineyards I look after a team of people who really love what they do and do it very, very well. There's a lot of uh, actual emotion involved in uh, looking after vineyards and making wines and uh, to have participated in creating an ambiance where people who feel like that about vineyards and wines feel at home and want to stay with us and people tend to stay with us and concentrate on their jobs, which are growing the grapes and making great wines. And a final, final, what advice would you have for a wine lover today? Keep an open mind and have an inquiring mind and not to be uh, limited by any prejudice you might have, either in favour or against any wine or any style of wine. Because uh, if you taste any wine you come across with an open mind, you can find yourself being agreeably thrilled or surprised. And I think it's also important to keep that open mind about the great uh, iconic wines, because if you find you don't like it, then uh, you should think to yourself, I don't like this one. There's no point in, in buying it. So be faithful to your tastes and preferences. And above all, uh, never forget that it's all about uh, pleasure in, and, and shared pleasure with someone else or with other people. Thank you. Perfect. Took the words out of my mouth. Lovely. Everyone. Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. For yeah, it was lovely. So now we know that Bordeaux can be great value, even if at the top end prices bear little relation to production costs. Mildew is the bane of Bordeaux vine growers. The mass exodus of Bordeaux chateau owners to China is over. And that Chateau Sudero will increasingly produce dry rather than sweet white wine. It wouldn't surprise me at all that since recording this podcast, Christian Seeley has been negotiating to expand AXA Millésime's portfolio further, beyond Chateaus Pichon Baron, Sudero and Pibron, Domaine de Lalo in Burgundy, Quinta de Noval in Portugal, Disnoco in Hungary, and Outpost in Napa Valley. This podcast was created, hosted, and produced by Elaine Chacan Brown and me, Jancis Robinson. It's engineered and edited by Misha Stanton. Production assistance by Susan Castrava. Executive producers were Elaine Chacan Brown, Sam Dagamanjin for Recurrent, and me for jancisrobinson.com.